You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Rita Kertu Kaltiala is a professor of adolescent psychiatry in Tampere University and chief psychiatrist in the Department of Adolescent Psychiatry in Tampere University Hospital. She's a specialist in psychiatry, adolescent psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. She's been clinically involved in carrying out research on adolescent gender identity issues since 2011, when one of the two nationally centralized gender identity services for minors was opened in Finland in the Tampere University Hospital. She's been actively involved in service development, continuous education, and scientific writing and collaboration, both nationally and internationally, and in her home country, she's been invited as a member of major national initiatives related to gender treatment guidelines and legislation. She has published numerous scientific articles on adolescent mental health epidemiology, psychiatric health services research, and clinical adolescent psychiatry. Today, Rita tells us about the shift around 2010 in Finland, in which health policymakers, politicians, activists, and human rights groups started pushing for the inclusion of adolescents and children for gender transition. The adolescent psychiatrists at the time scrambled to accommodate these new demands, but recognized that identity consolidation is known to take more time, and they had concerns about such early intervention. Nevertheless, they began developing a program for childhood gender services based on the literature in other countries such as the UK and the Netherlands. They were astonished and quite confused when the populations arriving in their services reflected a very different demographic regarding age, sex, and presentation of comorbid psychiatric issues. They saw another shift around 2015, which continued to confound the clinicians there in Finland. Rita tells us about reading the Littman ROGD research, which accurately documented what she and her colleagues were seeing. Dr. Kaltiala also tells us that the predictions for improvements and symptom reductions that were reflected in the Dutch literature were not observed in their Finland clinics. And she describes how the country has moved towards prioritizing psychological care and meeting all the needs of the young patients who present with GD, rather than focusing only on their gender transition requests. This was a really interesting conversation. So here's our discussion with Dr. Kaltiala. Hello, Stella. How are you today? I am great. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, we have a guest today and, you know, I, I've been studying gender for the last few years and in, in, in a way I've never studied anything before in my life. And um, <laughs> a certain name crops up very often and I've always kind of rested on the name because it's unu- I'm interested in languages and it's an unusual name. And now we have in our very presence. So let me try and get this right. Rita Carto Caltialo. Hello, Stella. Hello, Stella and Sasha. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Let's correct. Let's correctly pronounce your name for our audience, please. Rita Kerttu Kaltiala. 
Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. really a lovely name. Your <laughs> name comes up again and again and again. I find in the literature that I read, that's a name that comes up so often. And so I, I'm, I'm, I thank you for um, uh, adding to such an under-researched field that like, I just hope researchers are listening to our podcast going, oh my God, there are so many things to study. And people need to go and study all this critiquing old papers to me is a little bit pointless. If we could get new research out on so many different parts of this, I think we would we would all benefit. I think everybody would benefit. It is actually I like to when I face new challenges in my job, I always start to think about also I'm interested in also doing research on it. And and when we have to do some clinical developments, I like to combine research programs so that we can also gather and produce new information and benefit the others. And then I think that research and clinical work should feed each other all the time. So that's what I've been trying to do with gender identity issues ever since I got involved. That's great. So maybe you can tell our audience, Arita, how, how did you start working in this field? Perhaps how did you get into psychiatry in the first place? It might be interesting to start there. Okay, that's quite some time ago already. But actually, sure. when I was studying medicine, I had planned I, 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 I had planned to be a doctor for all my life. And then I was already thinking about what kind of doctor shall I be? And I admired an orthopedist who was a friend of my parents. And I thought I'll also be an orthopedist. But then okay. when I was studying, started studying already the first year, I realized that I don't have that talent. I'm not practical with my hands at all. And it also needs strength. Mm. And I realized that I'm not going to be an orthopedic. So that was a crisis. <laughs> and I had to rethink. So I started to think about the different fields of medicine. And I was really, really thinking, what could be? And then I realized, psychiatry is fascinating. That will be my choice. Because I thought yes. human mind is endlessly fascinating and changing. And there's always something new to find. So I, I thought that, yes, I'm, I'm going to become a psychiatrist. And my colleagues, they laughed because they thought, okay, first year medical student, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> but really, that was my choice. Then I made the choice then and I followed that path. And you studied adolescence specifically, forensic psychiatry in adolescence. Can you explain to our audience what does that look like? What does that mean? Uh, in Finland, we have four different specialties within psychiatry. It's psychiatry, which is general or adults. Adolescent psychiatry, child psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. And I first specialized in psychiatry. But already before I completed, I, I got involved with the, in research on adolescents and adolescent mental health, adolescent development. I found that fascinating. And also in the end of my specializing to psychiatry, I had already been there for such a long time that the professor mm. allowed me to transfer to seminar on adolescent psychiatry. And then I decided that I'll also do that later on. And then there was a turn. I was working in the university doing a lot of research and, and um, I had a career turn. They opened an adolescent forensic unit in Tampere University Hospital. And as I first I thought, well, that's an awfully difficult job and I wonder who is so mad as to take it. <laughs> and then last minute, really, when the, it was closing the time to apply, I thought, I'll take it. And I applied. And then I really had to also complete the specialization to adolescent psych. Oh, I, I felt it was necessary. Mm. And later on, I also did uh, forensic psychiatry. 
So I've been working with adolescents since 2002, solely dedicating my clinical work to adolescents and adolescent forensics. And could I ask you, when did you come across gender or gender identity in the first place? Well, I first uh, came familiar with the issues when I was uh, specializing in psychiatry. I was working in the Department of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry and uh, that unit I think it started then, or at least there was the task of, of working with the uh, assessments of people who wish to proceed to, to juridical sex change and uh, medical and surgical interventions. So the gender identity service was established in two hospitals in Finland, in our hospital and in Helsinki, the capital. But I didn't participate then. I only heard something about that work. But then when I was working in the Department of Adolescent Psychiatry, there was some politically motivated discussion in Finland about and, and human rights oriented discussion about uh, child and adolescent position of children and adolescents in, in gender identity field. And there was a, a strong pressure that Finland had interpreted that only legal adults can enter these assessments and these treatments. And then the discussion started that maybe it's not inappropriate that there is such an age limit that also younger people should be able to enter those assessments, even if uh, juridical sex change uh, is uh, still reserved to legal adults. And then the end of this discussion was that uh, it was decided that uh, gender identity services have to be opened also for children and adolescents. And uh, then it turned out Naturally, I think actually that the adult services that already existed, they didn't feel competent to assess adolescents, not to mention children. And then I just realized that I was the chief psychiatrist of the Department of Adolescent Psychiatry, that, okay, it's in my hands, we have to have such a service. And we started to plan when, how exactly shall we do it and how shall we, you know, make the administration and the team and everything. But so we just, just had to start. There was just a little jump there that I thought was interesting where it was decided that the children and the adolescents also needed the gender um, medical intervention. Who who decided that? Or what you was said it? there was a, a political motivation. So can you tell us who was behind that political pressure and around what years was that? That was uh, the discussion started maybe 2009. So 2009, 2010, there was this discussion. And there were, well, health policymakers, human rights activists, political uh, political people, politicians were participating, and uh, maybe on the law side more the discussion also prevailed whether there is, you know, discrimination, age-based discrimination when the young people cannot end these assessments. So it didn't actually come from adolescent psychiatry. Because in adolescent psychiatry, we think that identity consolidation is the outcome of adolescent development. So that was that time particularly um, a bit strange to us to think that we should take the starting point that the identity can be so consolidated in early phases of adolescent development that we should maybe assess young people with, with, with the idea that they may proceed, so assess the 
whether, whether they should proceed to medical interventions because of the gender identity. When we had, we were used to think that identity will consolidate in the end of, of adolescent development. So of that was course. quite a challenge. Especially sexual identity, right? I mean, given that there are so many experiences in the young adult years and adolescent years, especially sexual identity takes time to consolidate. Well, and any aspect of identity, actually, because will, uh, children usually, uh, they assume the identity as, as given by the surroundings, so primarily from the parents. They see themselves as the Parents allow them to see themselves. And it's adolescence is the developmental period when the young person starts to actively seek and question and search and try and experiment with identity options. And it is according to the theories on, on which we lean in adolescent psychiatry, it is, it is known and that adolescents even if they, they experience that their identity at any given moment is very severe and true to them, then adolescents also may, their identity may evolve. After two years, or after one and a half year, after three years, they may see themselves very differently. And that's perfectly normal in adolescence. And it's a part of the, the process of obtaining the more stabilized identity of an adult person. And it's also that adolescent identity is more contextual, so that being in one context, they try, they they easily perceive themselves pretty much according to the social norms and rules of this context, and and may the same young person in another context feel quite differently of herself or himself. So this is how we were used to think about identity development during adolescent years and and sexual as to as to sexual development that's another very important part of adolescent development the acceleration of sexual development and the stepwise uh, approach to to more intimate behaviors and learning about oneself and the partner and one's desires and how one feels so we wouldn't expect in adolescent psychiatry that in early phases of adolescent development, like in 12, 13, 14 years, you would already be ready with, with your identity, any aspect of identity, but also not of, of sexual and gender identity. So it was quite a challenge for us to, to integrate the, the whole notion that, that gender identity might be so consolidated in early years of adolescence that that even medical interventions might be justified or warranted. And was there many people who were not happy with this kind of almost political decision to to consolidate uh, identities when, you know, ar- arguably, you know, identity formation is, is ongoing almost until they're 25, uh, you know, with the, the adult brain, you know, the adult adolescent brain. I do know James Caspian. Uh, he's a psychotherapist from the UK. And he was part of a, a panel that were kind of discussing issues like that. And I remember him telling me, I, I used to be up at night worrying about uh, what I could see would be future happenings. And he turned out to be right. He turned out that he, what he was worrying, because it sounds so frantic to think that, that you're on a panel and you're actually, it's keeping you up at night because you're thinking of what could happen. 
And he was right. What what he worried about did fall. Was there much of that going on when you were around these decisions or when this was happening? Well, this was, of course, perceived very um very difficult task by by the profession of adolescent psychiatry. <laughs> I'm sure that many were happy that <laughs> it was dedicated to certain places. So our team had to start learning about this and 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 start um, contacting other teams that already had more experience. But I think that in the first in the beginning. I think most of the society was not that concerned. It was not discussed so much and not many people had heard anything about gender identity issues. There were quite a lot of people who maybe had never heard about it or had never stopped and thought about it. So they didn't have any opinion, mainly. Also in within medicine, because uh, even uh, adult gender identity issues, it was something that the very small circle of uh, professionals were working with and it was not much discussed generally in that time yet it has been discussed hugely much more later on and do you remember the first time you heard about puberty blockers for the context of of gender identity it was first we we of course learned about that we contacted uh, the clinics in amsterdam and in london and learned about it and actually we we expected then of course i also read whatever was available so i thought that we will be because in the in the literature kind of it was there was a lot of discussion about such young people who experienced gender dysphoria already in very early years in childhood were maybe maybe expressing um either opposite sex identification or even gender dysphoric feelings from childhood and then that intensified in the puberty and then i learned about these uh, these um, treatment options such as puberty blockers and later on cross sex hormones and and i kind of thought that this is then the the model case the the, the you know that the most patients will be like that but actually when we opened our service we met uh, lots of uh, unexpected phenomena so mm-hmm. one of them was that firstly for quite a long time and still most of the young people who we who started to get referred to our service actually had started to question their gender only after puberty so we didn't see so many or hardly any actually uh, of of such young persons that they they were seeing in in the netherlands for example so they they seem to have a very different clientele clientele so our our the young people who came to our service and also this is the same case in the other service in helsinki because we have been collaborating very closely all the time we started to see mostly young people who have started to problematize their gender and question their gender after puberty even well after puberty or latest during puberty and then also what i had been reading was that the greatest concerns seemed to me in the literature that that parents are on are particularly concerned about small young boys boy boy children prepubertal boys uh, identifying as girls and that uh, it's much more common that it's uh, biological boys who have gender dysphoria and and present in those services 
I of course also learned immediately that it seems to be there something cultural because the boy-to-girl ratio was varying so much. But in our service, actually, we have been seeing ever since 2011 mostly teenage biological females. So it's a very small share of biological males all the time and still in our service. So it was kind of not what we had expected based on literature and consultations with, with colleagues in other countries where they had had service longer time. So in your clinic, were you also looking at the kind of development of symptomatology? For example, I know, I mean, just to give you some context, Rita, I work with adolescent onset gender questioning teens. So precisely the female population that you're talking about and Stella does as well. And also we both kind of support parents who have a child who suddenly kind of announced a transgender identity in their teenage years. And what we've noticed and we have also seen in Dr. Lisa Littman's research is that there seems to be a lot of social media use that precedes that announcement or perhaps peer um, discussions amongst a friend group, for example, where the entire friend group is coming out as transgender. So in Finland, were you guys also um, kind of collecting information about what immediately preceded this sudden gender distress? First, we were, when we, we started to do the work, we were kind of waiting that, as I said, that the, the young people would be more like described in the literature and also described by the, the other services elsewhere. And we were astonished about the, well, late, I, I wouldn't say adolescence is a very late onset. To me, you know, my intuition of late onset is in, in middle ages or about 50, but late compared yes, yes. to childhood onset. So sure, adolescence sure. onset cases and and the, the number of biological girls, or the share of biological girls. But then what we also, what stroke, uh, stri was striking to us was that we also noticed that uh, quite the many young people who came to the service had uh, quite severe psychiatric problems and quite the heavy psychiatric history already and currently were suffering from severe mental disorders. And that was also quite unexpected uh, based on the literature and also exper by experiences of some other groups because uh, we, we didn't expect that uh, there would be such a lot of psychiatric symptomatology and, and severe psychiatric disorders in this clientele. So we were very astonished and, and actually quite confused because we kind of also strongly got the message from, from literature and, and discussions uh, with other professionals that that uh, that maybe the distress related to to gender dysphoria and and is uh, resulting in uh, psychiatric symptoms that can uh, therefore be considered secondary but actually we started to see lots of young people with a long history of psychiatric uh, troubles and psychiatric treatment needs ever since childhood and it was clear that not uh, in most of the cases you you really could not think that the, the psychiatric disorder is uh, secondary it was not mild it had occurred it had an onset much earlier than the gender concerns and it seemed to me that uh, something is not really <laughs> matching here. So that's one of the issues that inspired me to go on research. So we started to collect 
structured the collect information. We first collected retrospectively information of the, the first two years. Well, we, we held the impression all the time because we were discussing in the team and, and, and we were much troubled that what is this because we are seeing different young people than from, from what is uh, described elsewhere and we were worried, well, are we doing something wrong and do, are we missing something? Is our clinical eye <laughs> blinded? Because, because it was so unexpected. But then we really also made our first structured assessment of, of the young people, collected information in, in the case files and really documented this, that uh, quite many had a strong psychiatric history and uh, which was clearly prior to the onset of the gender concerns. And then we also noticed that I have been doing research earlier on pubertal timing and mental health in adolescence. And I have earlier demonstrated that uh, earlier pubertal timing that's earlier than average among the peers is related to risk of, of developing mental health symptoms during adolescent years. So, so I've been very interested in the topic and we also noticed that many young people who had gender identity concerns and dysphoria related to that were actually reported quite early onset of puberty. That we also later collected in a structured way and have published it in a short report that the early pubertal timing in these biological females who experience strength, gender dysphoria is present as well as it, it, it's related somehow to gender dysphoria during adolescent years. I, But I, then, I, I, yeah. yeah, keep going. No, you keep going. The document. So first years we were struggling with, the, with this issue that why are we seeing, what is the role of this quite severe psychiatric comorbidity and, and what should be done about that? And it was also, when I, I said earlier that not so many had, you know, ever heard about child and adolescent gender dysphoria or ever thought, stopped and thought about it, and the, the society at large, it was not an issue that everybody was talking about that time, only 10 years ago. So that was, it was also the time that we realized that quite often when the young person started to express uh, the gender dysphoria and question the gender, then professionals around the young people in the school, the teachers, child welfare people if they were needed, and child, uh, child and adolescent psychiatrists, adolescent psychiatric services and mental health services, not non-specialized mental health services, quite many professionals felt insecure and, and kind of uncertain about their professional competence. And it occurred quite many times that young persons should have had quite lots of needs in, in mental health needs and maybe even child welfare needs and special needs in the school. And those needs remained unmet because when the young person started to think about the gender dysphoria, then everybody felt that I don't know about this gender dysphoria and they were afraid maybe to do, to do harm if they do their normal job. And we met lots of young people who had not gone to school for even two years and, and have been, had been thinking about the gender and somehow the, the environment had allowed this to happen. 
and and then that was also also troubling us a lot because during adolescence the identity development takes place in normal interaction with age in age appropriate uh, environments and social social connections so adolescence is a period when contact with peers is desperately needed for developmental reasons and healthy adolescents always seek peer contact it's it's contact with same aged peers is of utmost importance and then we were seeing lots of young people who were totally isolated of all peer contacts and also one discussion is that has been that uh, young people who display gender non-conforming behaviors may be discriminated against and and bullied but actually we also noticed that young people whom we were seeing had had long periods of isolation they have isolated themselves before they started to question their gender so it was not matching so we had to do research and contact more people and think <laughs> And thank you. Thank you for doing the research because it's really needed. Um, I, I often think about those children. I think a lot of children are having such a disnified childhood that they have a form of puberty phobia or a, they have a stronger reaction to what is already a, a very difficult um, process anyway. But what is the follow up like from these services? So let's say 2011, 2010, you started, let's say, you know, effectively, as as I can imagine, prescribing puberty blockers so those children would be anything from 10 or 11 and they would now be I presume 22 23 and some of them might have been 15 or 16 and they'd be now 26 27 is do, do you understand I don't know what age they were but you, you can correct me but I'm I'm very keen to know about the follow-up like where are they how are they doing what what contact does the clinic have so that we can figure out how, how are they working out Okay, so we were actually not seeing too many so young people that uh, that puberty blocking would be kind of an appropriate idea because most of the young people presented in those early years and they still present at 15, 16 or even 17, first present in 15 plus. So then the physical puberty usually has already gone through. And then... Of course, uh, we are doing the, the psychiatric or the mental health assessment and, and the identity assessment and, and also then, then kind of our gatekeepers in, in, in the issue of whether young people may proceed to hormonal treatments. But then, then there are other experts, of course, who decide about how exactly the hormonal treatments will be initiated. But uh, they are commonly already uh, mature enough that you actually start to think about cross-sex hormones or you may have an initial um, GNRH analog period so of, of kind of a washout, but you can actually no more delay the puberty or, or block the development because it has gone through the physical puberty. But anyway, we, of course, then uh, as, as time has gone by, then we started to, to also have young people who have proceeded to, to hormonal treatments. Uh, surgical treatments are in Finland only uh, possible when you are legally adult. And the young people who proceed to hormonal treatments, they, they stay in contact with us because in our system there is a period of, of follow-up period before they may proceed to, to changing the identity documents. So it's kind of a 
real life phase or a follow up of to see how it starts going and if they are happy about it and if they are if they need any any more uh, intervention any more assistance and there then we started also to notice which was uh, also really troubling to us that uh, not everybody were doing so well because we had we had received the message from the whole world, so to say, from the literature and, and everywhere that that it will be a great turn, a great relief for the young person, a kind of new start. And this was not the case. So we started to see our clinical impression started to be that if the young people had trouble like psychiatric disorders, untreated or psychiatric needs, or problems in school, or problems in peer relationships, or just low functional level, like they were not functioning age appropriately, then even if they were satisfied with the changes that the hormonal treatments were producing, this did little to relieve the other problems, such as psychiatric symptoms or lowered functioning or peer difficulties or trouble in the school. So we also later then have made, of course, it's also quite a small survey, everybody, or small study. Everybody has only small studies because this field is changing so quickly. But we also have our follow-up study of, of about one or one, one to half year, one and a half years since starting the hormones. And unfortunately, we were able to demonstrate in our material, as I just said, that psychiatric symptoms were not remitting solely with the cross-sex hormonal treatments and other difficulties that the young people were having in, in not functioning age appropriately in school or in everyday skills or in, in peer relationships, they also did not disappear. So our message is that every, all, all, every kind of intervention the young person may need because of psychiatric trouble or child welfare needs or substance use problems or difficulties in peer relationships or pedagogical special needs, they have to be given so that the you, you shouldn't think that simply changing gender will, will resolve all these problems. And I think that has been, in a way, it's a wrong message. If people are being told that all kinds of problems will be resolved, you need special, specific interventions to all specific problems you have, whether or, or however you feel about your gender and whether or you not you question it and whether or not you have dysphoria related to gender or whether you or not you go to interventions. Unfortunately, I have to say, because I just said earlier that many professionals had felt helpless and had not been able to do their work, this has completely changed in Finland. People who are working with adolescents nowadays, the, the mental health professionals and the adolescent psychiatry and schools particularly, they they are doing what is expected, what, what they need to do when the young person has special needs. So I'm really, really happy to tell that the Finnish professionals who are working with adolescents in different roles nowadays feel competent to perform their role 
even if the young person is is questioning their gender. Yeah, I've noticed that the Finnish kind of the guidelines have changed and I'm looking forward to you explaining, you know, how they changed and and whether it's made a big difference. But before that, I'd love to hear when and um, how you felt when you first heard the concept of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Oh, you know, I thought this is exactly what we are seeing in our clinic. Because after the the first years, when I, I was first talking about these adolescents who had lots of psychiatric symptoms and severe psychiatric problems, and we were so troubled. So what's wrong? Because we are seeing something else than what the world is talking about. So we, we of course, asked, I mean, this is Finnish national character. You know, we always ask, am I doing something wrong? What are they thinking about me? Finnish national characteristics. Anyway, we were thinking, are we doing something wrong? Are we not seeing something? <laughs> you doubt yourself here in this corner of the world. Anyway, then there was a change. And I think many sources have mentioned 2015 as kind of a starting point for some change. And that was also here. We started to see new kinds of young people contacting our service. And they were young people who, they were, in a way, they were doing better than those who we, whom we were worried about earlier. They, they were mainly going to school, talking with their parents. They had friends. They, they, everything seemed to be better. Maybe did not have psychiatric history at all. They were not displaying severe psychiatric symptoms. But then we felt also that the, there's still something missing. We, we, you know, we need to have some more knowledge because these young people were also not like the what the discussion seems to, prevail, to be around. So that they were young people who had quite a short history of gender dysphoria and it had also seemed also to, to happen such cases that in a certain school, for example, all of a sudden you have half a dozen of young people who who start having uh, severe feelings of gender dysphoria. And we also noticed that that young people were contacting each other very actively and, and exchanging uh, experiences of, of their feelings, but also of their assessments with us. So we started to feel that the networking in the social media may have an impact on on these young people, on how these young people feel that they should, what they should do about their, their feelings of searching for their identity and, and questioning themselves. And then I learned, I, I read this paper about rapid onset gender dysphoria, and I thought, okay, I think that this exists. That young people, and also I read the other paper, the, oh yeah, I was writing an, a review, I was writing a review paper, which is, uh, um, oh, how, how was the name of our paper? I can't now. Is it process. gender dysphoria in adolescence, current perspectives? Yes, exactly. Yes, and that's actually, how I first heard about your work. Yes. And then one of the re re reviewers uh, suggested a lot of more literature, and that was very helpful. I, I found a lot of interesting literature based on, based on these discussions, this e well, 
letter exchanging with this reviewer. And one of those papers was also uh, Marciano's uh, outbreak about um, social contagion. And I really, I know that not everybody likes it, but I have to agree that I, I thought this is valid because it seems to be happening. And generally, this is natural to adolescents. Adolescents are very um, suggestible to the peer group influences and also searching for confirmation to their ideas in the peer group. It's the very nature of adolescence because this is how the identity developments during adolescent years. They, they exchange ideas and they kind of share identities in the peer groups and, and this gives them feeling of power and strength against some other groups and identities and some other conditions that may, they, they may feel threatening. So this has already always been there. So why wouldn't it be there also concerning uh, feelings about one's gender and gender identity? Because it's always, I, I remember when I was a teenager, it was something else. We were only talking about, you know, what kind of music and fashion you like and what kind of group you identify. But actually it was very important to to connect with the same similar-minded peers and, and make a, a line between us and those who have some other tastes. So it's the same phenomenon. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. We, sure, we saw it in West Side Story, the Jets and the Sharks. <laughs> we saw it again and again. You might know that it's a, it's a musical, but it's, it's, it's happened all the time with teenagers for, for many years. Um, was this the type of conversation that was going on in the clinics, or was this your own private kind of rolling around your own thoughts? Or was it just a well-established... Because I get the impression from, let's say, the Tavistock that people were speaking about it and then they'd kind of park it and continue to, to follow the treatment plan that didn't really make sense to their understanding of psychology. Well, we were talking about this a lot in our team and also between the two adolescent teams in Finland. And I have been also all the time talking a lot with colleagues because uh, quite many want to, to hear about our work and also learn more about this phenomenon and more and more, of course, because the number of adolescents who, who problematize their gender has multiplied. So I've been uh, meeting colleagues in different clinics and, and lecturing and exchanging ideas quite a lot. And then I've also been actively contacting uh, colleagues in abroad in other centers and, and discussing these phenomena. And I think that it, quite many actually said that those who had started the work earlier, they also saw the shift to increasing proportion of adolescent biological girls and adolescent onset cases from what they earlier had been working with, with the prepubertal uh, biological boys. So 
but it has been kind of leading because I think we have the highest proportion of biological girls in, in our material in Finland. We have still, all, after all these years, it's still about 85-90% of adolescents who contact are teenage biological girls. And most of them still, in vast majority of them, have only started to problematize their gender and experience gender dysphoric feelings with the onset or after the onset of puberty. I have a question about the timeline. You mentioned that in Finland, the professionals were starting to understand the importance of fulfilling their roles, even when a child is questioning their gender, and continue to meet the needs that exist in all adolescents. And you're also talking about 2015, seeing this other shift in the population. So at 2015, were professionals trying to meet the holistic needs of the child? Or was that a more recent phenomenon? I'm curious about the approaches to the population change in 2015. Well, of course, uh, it was first us in these gender identity units who started to think about this and, and wonder what, what is it about that 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 uh, because earlier quite many when we we had suggested that as this young person is having such a severe psychopathology and it definitely needs to be treated because if you have severe psychopathology and and you have a, uh, maybe even maybe you even need inpatient treatment or so so severe psychopathology you need specialized level services for a long time then it's a um, generally understandable, at least in, in our context in Finland, to professionals that making firm conclusions about uh, permanent identity in such a situation is a really has a very weak basis. And there is a great risk of, of misestimating the young person's identity development if the young person is suffering from severe psychiatric disorders currently, and if they, they are untreated or not treated well enough, only partially treated and, and not remitting. And, and so that was uh, then when people kind of, they were empowered and got back their, their you know, kind of hold of, of the normal professional approaches that even if young person is feeling, gen, have, has feelings of gender dysphoria and is questioning the gender identity, it must not prevent me from, from uh, you know, working as a teacher with the special needs in the school or prevent me from, from talking about the whatever substance use issues or whatever. So after that, when we started to see these young people who were kind of, we felt that after relatively short considerations, they were convinced that the only path they have to go is uh, the physical treatments. So then that was another discussion, of course, because uh, many professionals felt that these young people do not have severe psychiatric problems. So, therefore, this is clear. <laughs> but if you have a young person who has uh, relatively quickly drawn firm conclusions, it, it doesn't appear like identity work. It's 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 kind of... There, I think there is a risk that is actually escape from identity work, that, that you kind of quickly 
take a hold on a certain conclusion and, and hold on it, whatever comes. And we were also concerned that if you are talking about an identity and based on the identity you are seeking for quite severe interventions to the body, and if you are if you think about anything else than puberty blockers in early puberty, it's it's also quite quickly irreversible changes that you may be producing on the body. So to what extent can you, and particularly if you're talking about a young person who is a child, according to, for example, the UN Chart of Child's, right, child's mm -hmm. Rights of the Child, and mm -hmm. needs special protection, if the identity appears to be shared, but the body is only one and it's yours. So I think there is a, a, a contradiction. And you should definitely be able to be convinced that the young person has been working individually on their own identity and it is personally worked through. Because if it gave us a very vague feeling when when you realized that that many young person young people were coming from, for example, the same school they they found quite quickly this uh, issue, so it, it doesn't feel a safe basis for uh, medical interventions to individual bodies. I think it's fine that young people live through, they exp express themselves as ever they feel, and it, it's, it's good, it's great, and it's so severe. I remember how severe it was for me in <laughs> teenager to be of a certain yes. group. And I really thought that was... Forever. Forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, of course it's important for the young person. But then making, using, you know, making medical interventions for the healthy body must have um, kind of a stronger consideration of course. I wanna, so I think, yeah. I want to ask one more thing too, while we're, we're on this topic about the identity and the power of it in adolescence. In, in many of the literature that we're seeing now, as well as some of your papers, you highlight the high incidence of autistic traits in these young people. And you talked about the fact that the highly autistic child may lack the flexibility to deal with ambiguity in their gender expression or gender presentation. And I'm wondering if you want, can just kind of comment on that, because I think that this black and white thinking and even the tendency for some kids on the autism spectrum to obsess and fixate on things is really playing a big role here. So can you share any of your thoughts on this? He started to note already in the in the beginning of our work that there were um, more than expected um, autistic autism spectrum features and, and diagnosis of autism spectrum within this client this population who was coming gender identity assessments, and in the first paper which we published of of the first two years of our service, we had actually a, a, the proportion of, of young people with autism spectrum disorder exceeded 20. So it was more than 20%, which was extremely high compared to, to 
the prevalence of autism spectrum disorders in the population. Since 2015, when we have had, have had these uh, new types of young people coming to these interventions, the, it has, uh, the, the proportion of autism spectrum disorders has definitely gone down somewhat, but I can't give exact figures. But it has been speculated and it has been thought about quite a lot. What kind of, what could it be? The, why is there this connection? There really seems to be, it has been shown in different populations, that uh, among the young people with, with gender identity issues and gender dysphoria, there are more with autism spectrum disorders. And also among children and adolescents with autism spectrum disorders, there appears to be more gender variance or at least gender non-conforming experiences and, and behaviors than in um, the population in general. But the origins of the connection is actually not yet known. Uh, Dutch researcher Anna van der Miesen uh, published her thesis last year on and it was a series of studies on autism and, and gender dysphoria. And she indeed demonstrated that this connection exists in different uh, populations and also reviewed the different theories of uh, the connection. For example, if you think about uh, such theory as extreme male brain theory of autism, that autism is about being extremely synthesizing and little empathizing or almost not at all empathizing, and the empathizing dimension of the personality is, is more common among girls of, of any ages, females, and, and systemizing in males, and, and autism could be a phenomenon where there is an extreme male brain and all systemizing and nothing empathizing. That would, of course, nicely explain why biological girls on autism spectrum could develop gender dysphoria and, and male uh, identity. But it leaves totally open, then why are there biological boys with autism spectrum who identify then girls? Because that would, doesn't fit at all the extreme male brain theory. And, and then there are some other theories, like it's been considered that if they have unusual sensational experiences like then they are fascinated by by colors and materials and and feelings that are more typical for girls and provided for girls then they, they it might be kind of a conclusion that because i like that i have to be a girl then this doesn't explain at all why there are those biological females on autism spectrum who identify masculine so the theory is may be good for one side, but not the other side. And it has not been solved. <laughs> and could I ask you, uh, I have two kind of questions to ask you. One is the identity. I presume there was a, quite a severe change in how you needed to address people because you felt because of a lot of identity politics, it, it, it suddenly became that you, you couldn't say this person had gender dysphoria, you had to say that this is a bo boy I see before me. Um, did that impact in Finland the way it has in other countries? Uh, obviously not so much. I, th I think that uh, that discussion is not so um, animated. And of, it's also that in Finnish language, we only have one pronoun for, you know, both he or she. Everybody's han. So it's a unisex pronoun. And actually, if you are talking, you know, informally, you always, often also say it <laughs> of anything <laughs> and then some people call their pets a hand uh, she or he like the pet is uh, 
honored with that. But in Finnish language, the issue of pronouns is therefore a non-issue, actually. But then, of course, young people uh, wish to be called by different names. Uh, the, another name that they, what is their given name. And uh, I have noticed since already quite some years that schools are quite happy to tell the young person, call young person on the name the young person wish to be called. And I think it's actually very good because it is the task of the school is to make the school a place where the young person can, can flourish so that they want to come to school and they can learn and they can connect with peers. So I think that if, if schools make this little adjustment and are happy to call young person with the, with the name they wish to be called and that helps the young person to go to school and integrate with peers, then that's everybody's benefit. Uh, debatable point <laughs> that we could revisit at some stage because I find that it, you know, it arguably it, it gives an imprimatur, it gives a branding, it concretizes an identity if adults kind of fall in. It's a different thing with peers. Peers are peers and they've often called children different things. But when adults come in and bestow an authority on a change of identity, I think it could arguably concretize it perhaps. Yes, I understand that, but you know, it doesn't feel so such a big issue when we don't have this pronoun issue. It, yeah. it's, I think it's in I Finnish think language. I it's a huge difference. I think names is fine, pronouns is a whole other thing. Yeah, it, it, it really doesn't make such an impact, I think. Because I, I, read, I was reading a, actually two books where this was problematized quite a lot and, and, and learned about English-speaking countries and, and the United States, for example, about this issue how, of pronouns and That's names. Huge in Ireland But too, it, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't feel so big because young people always uh, have always liked to use different kinds of nicknames and, and uh, that kind of thing. So I think that this pronoun that we do not have this pronoun issue it's actually quite helpful in this sense no but nobody's so troubled about it that's two big hits for the Finnish language because today I learned it's phonetic which is great for dyslexics and it has han which is the kind of gender neutral pronoun I, I am very keen to ask about as far as I, I can read that Finland kind of broke from WPATH guidelines and prioritized psychotherapy over Uh, hormonal intervention from about 2020. Now, I am based in Ireland and I don't think it's well known enough that in the National Gender Services in Ireland, they never followed WPATH. They still don't follow WPATH standards of care. They follow their own standards of care that they're very proud of and it seems to be a good standard. And um, I, I find it a little bit disingenuous when people presume that WPATH is this gold standard that countries aren't taking up at and also that countries are taking the decision to no longer follow. Am I right in that with Finland? Well, the history, of course, is that there was really no such standard that somebody would have written down because earlier uh, the services were open until 2002 only for adults. And of course, the, the two units for adults, they were networking internationally and, and following international recommendations and talking with colleagues abroad. But then we, when we came to starting the service for, for minors, then of course we immediately started to think about it based on our knowledge on, on adolescent development and, and 
we made all these observations, as I mentioned, that didn't fit, fit the kind of official picture of, of what kind of young people will be contacting these services. So the young people were different. And we had to find our way to, to, to work with this issue. And then there also started to be, um, in Finland also, the legislation is uh, quite heavily regulating the services for 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 this issue, the gender identity services, and particularly the gender reassignment services, both the juridical path and the and the medical access to medical interventions. Uh, there will be likely change very soon in the in the juridical side, but but anyway, currently, and it has been so that the legislation has quite a, a heavy role, and uh, therefore, uh, people. People all who were working in this field started to be confused because there emerged new new kind of identities and new desires about treatments, new possibilities of what you can do to modify the body. So everything was much more than in the time when the, the legislation had been written and the services had been created. And we had quite a pressure towards individual doctors to, to do individual solutions and, and go beyond the, what earlier has been the limit of it and what earlier has been the habit of doing and, and also be experimental. And we felt that this was too much a pressure on an individual doctor and actually suggested from the gender identity services that the national body whose task it is to outline what kind of services are provided in Finland in publicly funded health services, which means either in the taxation-based public services or in, in private services with reimbursement from national health insurance, which means that if you are getting the society affords it, then what is included in these services. And then finally... Uh, I'm really happy that this national body took this task, even if this was a very challenging task compared to, like they usually, they quite often work with such an issues that there is, let's say, a very, very expensive treatment from some rare type of cancer or some rare type of inheritable disease. There is a very, very expensive treatment and then they consider whether Finland is providing this very expensive treatment or something like that. But they also take more complicated tasks and this issue of what what is kind of the variety of services that's included in public health services in, in Finland for gender dysphoria, it was quite a complicated task for the committee to, to, to line. And then there was made a lot of research and huge uh, systematic review was ordered from an independent body who is specialized on doing systematic reviews on about the evidence base of all the treatments. A huge ethical analysis was ordered from another body and there was a lot, lots of expert discussions and, and based finally the, these guidelines were tailored and they concluded that as actually the evidence base for uh, medical gender reassignment starting during developmental years is uh, minimal, actually non-existent, then it cannot be the first line recommendation in Finland. Because actually already, if you think about the Dutch protocol, 
the, the, the known as Dutch protocol that you, you start with the puberty blockers uh, after the first stages of puberty and then closer to legal adulthood you may proceed to cross-sex hormones and then maybe surgical treatments if the young person wish, so wishes in adulthood. Then actually the evidence base for this Dutch protocol is firstly it is tailored for such young persons who already identified with the opposite gender and maybe had gender dysphoric feelings from early childhood. So it was those uh, well-established in childhood cases who do not desist in puberty, as most of them it is known that they, they grow to other direction. But those, uh, that small share of those young people who have a childhood onset gender dysphoria that intensifies in puberty, and according to the Dutch protocol originally, they should not have severe psychiatric comorbidities, maybe only secondary and mild psychiatric disorders, and they should have a uh, developmentally appropriate uh, environment that can support the young person in the, in the change and in, in their development in general. And, and no severe substance use problems, of course. And, they, and then they may proceed. And this is only one study, one long-term study that has been carried out that has demonstrated the benefits of this treatment. And actually, I respect this research approach, and it's very difficult field to research. But the comparison group in that study was also not comparable to the intervention group. So the scientific value of this only one study is uh, not exactly what is required in medical evidence nowadays. And thereafter, it has, there have only been publications of uh, individual clinics, naturalistic follow-ups of their patient groups, usually having some, some tens of young people and it's unclear totally based on the publications of uh, what kind of uh, selection there was before they entered. So was it everybody or what proportion of those who were admitted were entered to the program? And, and they are just naturalistic follow-up studies and they have not been able to demonstrate uh, evidence. They, have not, they are not enough to give evidence, evidence for for this treatment. So this was also readily found out by the, the independent experts in, who did the review for the Finnish body, national body who makes these recommendations and therefore it was considered that actually these uh, treatments are experimental and therefore uh, it was decided that the first line intervention with minors who have gender dysphoria or problematize their gender should be a psychosocial intervention that gives them support in exploring their identity and, and in living through the identity as they wish and getting, gaining experience of it and kind of working the identity. So it's support for the identity work. And I know that psychotherapeutic approaches have been criticized and, and some, some people tend to deem them as, uh, as um, conversion therapies, but this is... Uh, it's not about that. Psychotherapy, it is not psychotherapy in order to change the identity. It is a psychosocial intervention in order to facilitate exploration and identity exploration and, and support the identity work that is normally taking place during this developmental phase. And thereafter, if nevertheless after that the young person still feels that that the medical intervention 
is a, is a considerable option or necessary to consider, then they may be referred to these specialized services for these assessments which, which may result in, in initiating gen medical gender reassignment interventions. It, it seems to me from an outside perspective that the, the power and influence of political groups seems to be much less prominent in Finland than it is in the United States, for example. So I'm wondering about these recent changes in, in light of the independent review. Were there activist groups or human rights groups that um, kind of opposed the slowing down and the prioritization of psychological support? Did you have much pushback in Finland around this? Well, certainly, yes. Not everybody was happy with it. So, of course, there are there are groups who think that there, there should be a quicker road to, to medical interventions and, and more quickly and, and maybe even without any kind of mental health assessment. But I really think that it is most important, particularly with young people, if you think about people who are underage and still in the developmental years, it is most important, particularly if you think about also, given the strong burden of psychiatric comorbidities and how they complicate identity development, and, and given also these social influences and the suggestibility of young people and the vulnerability to external influences of young people. It is important that, and that there is identity work and, and exploration and, and you take time enough to consider this issue before making such interventions where young people may make decisions about changes on their, their unique body that they may not be able to fully consider because if you think, for example, you think about the simple issue that you ask a teenager, do they wish to have children? There are hundreds of teenagers who think that I, I don't, I'll never have children. Have different reasons. Some think that the world, that, that the climate is uh, destroyed and the, the earth doesn't tolerate any more people or the world is too bad. I, I don't bring children to this bad world or it's too polluted or it's too dangerous or or then of course it's disgusting to me and I don't want to, to you know be pregnant, I don't want to spoil my body, whatever. And it's I think it's quite normal if you ask about ask young people who are in junior high school age that they are planning to have children or no, absolutely never. I don't think it's for me ever. And then you ask 30 plus women, if they don't yet have children, they, everybody's talk, thinking about that. So young person, so in, in before 20, you can really not, really not know what you, have, you will be thinking in your 30s, for example. And young people, it is the nature of adolescence to be absolutely sure, because that's the period of life when you are the most sure about whatever. <laughs> and, and therefore, for example, we always discuss fertility issues with young people, particularly when it starts to seem that they, they will proceed to hormonal treatments, we take the fertility issues. But most of the young people, they simply say that, well, I never thought I'll have children. It's, this is not an issue for me. It's, it's not important. It's more the mothers who are worried about this issue. Because these people are so young. Yeah. And I, I do think that, that the parents are more conservative because they have the longer perspective, perhaps, 
than the uh, uh, the children. If we were to turn to the parents, would you have any uh, words of advice just to wrap it up um, about any gender questioning children? What do you think works better for parenting um, the gender questioning child? I think the parents should talk more with their adolescent children. I think that we have particularly no, particularly noticed that in, in adolescent psychiatry in general, but also in this this group of young people in particular, quite often the parents they kind of do not dare talk with the young person. They they don't dare ask about this, and they don't they don't hold a discussion. So young person tells them uh, the information. They, they find appropriate to tell about gender dysphoria and then they say this is it and then they maintain it, that I, I am a, this is my identity. But the family is not talking. And generally I should say to all the families, all the parents, at least in Finland, that the parents should talk more with their teenage children, ask more questions, be there, available. And if the young person is saying <laughs> and, and is being rejecting or hostile or insulted or has a temper expression, then nevertheless try again and, and be there and talk and talk and talk. And if, you, if it comes to gender dysphoria and identity issues, this is a big issue. And sometimes I'm worried that we also meet parents who kind of do not seem to have figured how big issue this is. That Parents, I think that it is actually the responsibility of the parents to find out about those treatments and the permanent and irreversible changes and and uh, the the possible damage that can be done. And it's it's not only. Of course, we know that, for example, cross-sex hormones will make alteration to the to the body that makes the body look more like the body of the opposite sex, and that may be the desired change. But it's it's not enough knowledge about these hormonal treatments. So quite often, the the parents kind of seem to not dare to touch this issue. And in general, all the parents, and in particular in this this issue, they should talk more with a young person. Exchange ideas. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And um, I, I want to ask one last question here. You mentioned um, the the potential inability for a young person to comprehend the, the outcomes and even understand what they will want in adulthood. So <clears throat> what is your thought about the growing population of young adults and teens who are detransitioning or who have no longer um, maintained a transgender identity who perhaps feel really harmed by the medical interventions they received is i'm curious first of all if you are following this phenomenon globally and then also in finland are you seeing this yes of course of course i'm following it globally in the in the literature because i i find it a very very sad outcome particularly if if there is the the context that the young person feels that it was it all happened so quickly and i i was just carried away and it, i they didn't ask anything so i feel that it it it's really sad to hear and i know that we have been quite quite many have thought that we are too conservative in finland but we have also been always been concerned about 
this the possible possibility that that um, the young people regret and and great harm great harm may be done and i think that the young people who regret they should be also they they don't have enough space because it it, it is known that uh, it is really difficult and maybe they feel also shamed to to kind of come out and tell that they, oh, it was a bit mistake and now i'm feeling like this but at least if they want to talk and and want to share their opinions it it should be respected because such people exist who who regret and and have an identity confusion we have also of course already we're doing this for 10 years so already such such fates uh, emerge of course well we we're so pleased to have spoken with you today and we're very grateful for the research that you've done and also the 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 way that Finland as a nation has been able to set an example of how does a country appropriately evaluate the, the changes in population and the current evidence and take a more careful road. So thank you so much, Rita Kertu, for coming on. <laughs> well done, Sasha. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. This was a great honor and I was exci- very exciting. So thank you for having me. It was well, nice. Thank you for being here because it was very, very interesting. I'll keep listening to your podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. We hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I do. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.